quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I never gave late night one half of an ounce of thought because it just never occurred to me that that might become available to me ever. Because it wasn't even like there were different kinds of white guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> that voice belongs to the very talented Amber Ruffin. Before becoming a host herself of The Amber Ruffin Show on the streaming service Peacock, Amber was a writer and performer on Seth Meyers' Late Night Show on NBC. Like, I'm the first black female late night writer for a network late night talk show. Yeah, right, yeah. Like, it's a, it's a lot to make me the first, but, you know, I'll take it. And now, in her own late night entry, The Amber Ruffin Show on the Peacock streaming service. Amber's Ascension is a development both hugely welcome and stupefyingly late in the game. As recently as 2015, a talented young woman, a talented young black woman pondering her career options, did not think about maybe taking a shot at getting into big-time network late-night TV because looking around at what was on every screen she happened to take in, she saw nobody who looked like her both as a woman and a person of color. And she was right. This is maybe the least diverse thing of our lives. So, no, I never thought, okay, there'll be some room for me here. Not, not ever. The history of late-night television is filled with great stars, big laughs, and tons of memorable moments. Virtually all of them associated with white men. There have been exceptions, but any analysis of the American genre known as late-night TV would have to conclude it has been little different from most other American cultural genres. Until recently. I'm Bill Carter, and welcome to Behind the Desk, the story of late-night. That story is unquestionably changing just as rapidly as is the rest of television, or streaming, or screening, or whatever you want to call it now. I'm really excited to see the way in which this sort of art form just is blown wide open and taken in very, very different directions. From Because we're all kind of, we all have our own lanes and we're making really fascinating, fun, sharp comedies. So you're just going to have a plethora of things to taste. That's Z-Way a brand new voice on the late night scene with her own show on Showtime. Z-Way is making noise and waves based on the edgy conversations she's been having on platforms where new young audiences are gathering in big numbers. Z-Way's success has underscored that finding a niche somewhere outside a TV set is more than ever essential to carving out a place in late night. The greatest thing about doing a show like this right now today is it will travel and people will find it. It's never been less relevant what time of day your show airs. That's James Corden, 
of CBS's Late Late Show, who has, unquestionably, become a much bigger late-night star based on how many more people have seen what he can do on internet sites than on TV sets. Can't just say, like, I'm going to make a show for a black audience and then, like, expect to cover the entirety of the nation. Like, that's not going to happen. You know what I mean? So our, our goal was just to make a good show. And that's Kid Marrow, half of a very hot late-night comedy team, Desus and Marrow. Here's the other half, Desus Nice. And you don't want to have a brand new network and be like, you know what, let's do the same thing we've been seeing every other channel do for the last 60, 70 years. You know, let's get some new voices out there. There's new talent. New voices, new faces, new places to watch. The message is clear. Late night is not what it used to be in terms of the channels it's on, the times it's on, and even whom you can expect to see on it. It's not your father's late night anymore, especially if your father was a white guy on a broadcast network. Take it from Amber Ruffin. Every time you perform, you stretch out everyone's expectations. And, you know, now we are really just doing whatever the rip we want. And it, I find myself less and less going, okay, but can white people understand it? You know, I feel like I haven't wondered that in like a year. The times, they are changing. Amber Ruffin, Z-Way, Desus and Marrow. That's three new late night shows starring two men, two women, all people of color. Added to people like HBO's John Oliver and CBS's James Corden, both Brits, and The Daily Show's Trevor Noah, South African by birth, something big is shaking in the world of late night. Given the genre's history, virtually all male and all white and totally all American, that qualifies not just as the times are a change in, but they're undergoing revolutionary change. And like most revolutions, It's only happening because the old order is breaking down. In late night, that order was broadcasting. What we're experiencing now is something closer to flycasting because increasingly, the idea is to hook onto viewers in any stream where you can find them. We're going to talk about what looks like a wide-open future for late night where opportunities for talented people to get real shots at stardom are moving toward being virtually unlimited. But first, we have to acknowledge and examine the genre's distinctly limited past. The limits have always been the kind associated with clubs where certain people need not apply. Two adjectives effectively sum up the long-time roles of women and people of color in late night. Significant and frustrating. Women and people of color have surely made significant contributions to late night, but until very recently, those contributions have been vastly undervalued. That's the frustrating part. It's also the embarrassing part. So let's see. Women in late night. Joan Rivers, briefly, a major network host in the 1980s. Chelsea Handler, for sure, a successful six-year run on cable. Samantha Bee, highly respected 
and many times nominated for her current weekly cable show. As for people of color... I think a lot of the time, the mistake we make is we don't truly think of diversity, we think of tokenism. That's Trevor Noah, a truly established late-night star. The truth is you have to create genuine content. Late-night comedy as we know it is a space that has been white man's boys' club. Trevor is the real deal. A black star who hosts one of the premier shows in Late Night, The Daily Show. As for exceptions from the past, the most prominent, of course, is Arsenio Hall, a true phenomenon in the early 1990s. We've had George Lopez for a couple of years on cable a decade ago. Larry Wilmore, who did a fine but short-lived job on The Nightly Show on Comedy Central. Anyone else? For a while, we had Hassan Minaj. He definitely made a name for himself in Late Night, winning two Peabody Awards. Then, Netflix canceled his show after two years. And recently, Lily Singh jumped from YouTube to NBC, only to lose her footing and her place on network TV two years later. Young performers of color, like Amber Ruffin, have noticed. You know, there was Arsenio Hall a million years ago. There was Robin Thede a minute ago. There was Whoopi Goldberg, I think, at one point, and Wanda Sykes. There are these tiny opportunities for people of color, and then they are gone as quickly as they arrived. But lots of bigger networks give a lot more money and a lot more time to young white men finding their footing. (laughs) Whereas people of color are really granted that opportunity. You just have to come ready-made. And it is harder and it is unfair, but it is not impossible. One reason the pace of change has been so disappointing up to now is that late night ought to have been different because show business people have always trumpeted their progressive values. The great actress Emma Thompson played a longtime female host in the recent film Late Night. Emma is from England. But she got it. Here she is on the air with Stephen Colbert. And she needs to make the show better because she's been threatened with it being cut and she can't live without it. It's her only thing. It's the only thing that she really cares about. And she's a mainstay of American late night. She's been here 28 years. Yeah, yeah, she's a woman late night talk show. So it's basically science fiction. And, um... (laughs) Did you see the way I slipped that in? Notice the big laughs that got? So let's talk about the role of women in late night. There really needs to be an asterisk attached to the notion that women have not played a major role in late night. First of all, the sweeping observation that funny women have not impacted late night in a big way relates only to late night talk shows. If you decide to list the top 10 funny people on television over the past 20 years and you don't name Tina Fey or Amy Poehler, retire your license to make lists. They have created and starred in classic sitcoms, 30 Rock and Parks and Rec. Tina wrote a Broadway musical. And if you ask, well, what about performing a traditional monologue? 
I have an answer for you. Have you watched them on the Golden Globes? Gravity is nominated for Best Film. It's the story of how George Clooney would rather float away into space and die than spend one more minute with a woman his own age. I know Amy Poehler's been offered. That's Robert Smigel, who worked as head writer in the early days for one of those male hosts, a great one, Conan O'Brien. Robert is among the many experienced late-night veterans who find it unfathomable that there is still a blank space next to the category long-running women late-night hosts. There's no woman that anyone's willing to take a chance on the way they've taken a chance on James Corden or Conan O'Brien or Craig Ferguson. I mean, none of these people had the the cachet that would have said, oh, of course, Craig Ferguson, the guy who was, you know, he played Drew Carey's boss. (laughs) Why hasn't he had a show already? And I can say, based on decades of covering the television business, that if either Tina Fey or Amy Poehler raised her hand the next time a network late-night host position came open, they would probably have a contract in hand by the end of that business day. Many people were surprised that Samantha Bee didn't get a shot at the host's job on The Daily Show when Jon Stewart left. I know I was. In an interview with Ashley C. Ford for BuzzFeed in July 2019, B said, Yeah, I don't think that there was any serious conversation about having me take over the show. I think that the management at the time just didn't see me that way. Just didn't, they just wouldn't have thought of me. I think they wanted originally, I think they were looking for big celebrities to take that spot. They looked outward instead of looking inward. But Sam has also professed not to have wanted the Daily Show job because she wanted to start up something of her own. The fact remains, if you narrow the category to full-time hosts of major network late-night shows, you pretty much get down to one female name, Joan Rivers. Absolutely. Not one woman here was ever made love to because she did the linoleum. Lie down, you hot tramp. What happened with Rivers is in many ways most typical of many show business tales. A rise and fall. Rivers became a Johnny Carson favorite. He named her his permanent guest host. And she mainly shined in that role. Yes, that did start some expectations in the mid-1980s that she might be in line to succeed to the big chair on The Tonight Show whenever Johnny decided to abdicate. But Carson was not that much older than she and clearly not ready to cede the position. Rivers had certainly elevated her status as a trailblazing woman in comedy with a unique and outspoken voice. But did she fool herself about the network's feelings about her or any woman succeeding into that position? She said an NBC executive told her there was a list of supposed potential successors, and she was not on it. So, when wooed by the nascent Fox network, Rivers jumped, without informing Carson. His reaction was to totally end their professional and personal relationship. And, Rivers always argued, A-list guests started boycotting her show out of deference to the king, Carson. 
Whether that is what led to her abrupt failure or she got overwhelmed by the harsh light of scrutiny as the first female late-night host, whatever the reason, as the writer Nell Scoville put it, it hurt women in late-night for years. Just seeing that sensibility on screen every night was, was transforming. And it would be decades until other women could watch Chelsea Handler and now Samantha Bee and have that same experience. The bottom line was Joan Rivers took a shot at being a breakthrough female late-night host, and the shot missed. Or maybe backfired is the appropriate metaphor, because the urge to give another woman a real chance got deeply submerged. Being funny has a lot of social value, and I think powerful people were invested in not letting women have that social value. What is often lost in all the head-shaking about the dearth of women hosts is that if you get past the main chair, the person behind the person behind the desk has often been, and many times with great success, a woman. This may not qualify as especially gratifying because it leaves too many women in the crucial-but-forgotten category. We're going to try to make some of these crucial women of late night much less forgotten when we return to Behind the Desk after a short message. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Uh, only female member of our writing staff, our head writer, Meryl Marco. It's a sure thing that David Letterman doesn't forget his first and most important head writer, Meryl Marco. Meryl is arguably the most influential single writer in late night history. I'm the one making the argument, so I'll drop the qualifier. She is the writer with the greatest legacy. Nell Scovel underscores that point. You look at Meryl Marco. Look, Meryl Marco was head writer of Late Night with David Letterman for five years. 
And every year they won the Emmy for Best Writing. She ends up stepping down. They never won another Emmy for Best Writing. Letterman is the one credited with reinventing the late-night genre in the 1980s. But it was Merrill, his head writer, who put the creative stamp on virtually all that reinvention. Merrill had herself tried stand-up and found herself marginalized, as most women comics of her era felt in the 1970s. They seemed to scare the men. Here's Merrill Marco. I was writing kind of absurdist jokes. I didn't really know how to, how to be female on a stage. I didn't know if I was supposed to. I, I heard that word threatening being used, and I didn't know if that it would be less threatening if you would wear a dress or like... It w- was very hard to know how to be, you know? It was, it was a weird time for women. Merrill found her career as a writer by falling in love with a rising comic star, David Letterman. She began by delivering her material to him. And Dave had no issues on stage with people feeling threatened. As his career grew, he knew enough about great comedy to elevate Merrill to the head writer position. Much later, after they had broken up as a couple and Letterman had moved on to CBS, Dave said of Merrill, we haven't had a good idea since she left. Apparently, having a female head writer even though she was an all-time best, was a breakthrough so staggering it didn't happen again for another 20 years or so. That's when Liz Winstead and Madeline Smithberg invented The Daily Show, and Liz became the head writer. All Madeline did was run the damn show. She had previously worked as a segment producer for Letterman, where she could observe that it was very often women, Barbara Gaines, Jude Brennan, Maria Pope, serving in the executive producer role, which made them essential, but not elite. At Letterman, there were a lot of women, but now that I realize that they weren't in the writer's guild. You had women running Jude Brennan, Barb Gaines, running the show, The heart and soul of all those shows is run by women. But the highly prized, you get to fly first class, you're going to get residuals and health insurance uh, and a pension job. We're all going to men, all of whom were white and most of whom had gone to Harvard. The roster of women making these big shows run is indeed long and impressive. Surely no one deserves more credit for keeping a steady guiding hand on The Tonight Show when Jay Leno was the star than his extraordinary executive producer, Debbie Vickers. Debbie was a full partner in that show's success. Jimmy Kimmel has often said that his ABC show only found its footing when Jill Lederman took over as EP. And the current production boss at The Daily Show is Jen Flans who has her own insights into why it may be that so many women have the skill set to run a late-night show. I hate to play into a stereotype of women being organized and kind of being able to be taskmasters if they have to. Sometimes the men I work with think in terms of each and every joke, and I, like, think big picture. Like, how does all of this wrap up into one episode? Alison Silverman 
went from being the only female writer in the room on The Daily Show when it was hosted by Jon Stewart to being the head writer of The Colbert Report. Molly McNearney works as the co-head writer for Jimmy Kimmel, who is also her husband. And three other current hosts, Colbert, James Corden, and Samantha Bee, have installed women in head writing positions. So with women running some of these shows, and even some of the writers' rooms, why did it take so long for the representation of women to inch up? Meryl Marco made a point I've heard often from head writers in Late Night who are looking to build up a good staff. It's all about submitting a packet of really good work and impressing the head writer, then the executive producer, then the host. And historically... Many more men than women have applied for these jobs. And I remember there were just about no women submitting in those days for this kind of thing. I, somebody submitted some material and it was a one-act play about a woman. So I thought, well, this, there's not anything in here that shows me that she's going to be able to... You know, I, I was just looking not to fail again because um, I had a relationship with the host and I didn't want to watch that explode again. So... Um, so I was trying to do, the, do right by that premise. A generation later, when Alison Silverman was head writer for Stephen Colbert, she said she ran into the same issue. We would definitely get way, way more submissions from men. Um, but in hindsight, I, I wish that we had shaken the tree more than we did. That sets up a very touchy question. Why? Why didn't and don't more women chase these late-night jobs? Some women who run late-night shows, like Jen Flans, have a theory. I have a lot of friends that are school teachers. My sister's a school teacher. Just that boys, boys have this allowance to just say things and act out, and that girls aren't given that same allowance. In late-night, the thing you're supposed to do is blurt things out. And I had to learn this. And I think we're not as encouraged to just blurt things out and throw shit against the wall and see what sticks. And I, I sometimes try and remind the females that work with me, these guys throw shit out all the time. And it's terrible. <laughs> but if you don't throw anything out, you'll never get the good stuff. In that way, late night is not much different from every other corner of the business world. Women have had a tougher time being heard and being respected. But now, after a very long run, the Old Boy Writers Network looks like it's finally breaking down. Amber Ruffin, who never thought about a job working at a late-night talk show, got hers with Seth Meyers, sort of on the rebound from a missed chance at Saturday Night Live. Myers made a dedicated commitment to hiring female writers, and it worked. He has had as many as five on his staff, about a third of the total. Getting that job also made Amber Ruffin, if you can believe it, the first black female writer on a network late-night show ever. It was 2015 for Pete's sake. Does that matter to Amber? Yes, a bit. I think it's neat. I think there's a lot of um, qualifiers that have to go with that. Like, I'm the first black female um, late-night writer for a 
network late night talk show. Yeah, right. Yes. Like it's a it's a lot to make me the first, but you know I'll take it. Um, <laughs> it is cool. I mean, I don't know. It's a little sad, but uh, you know, look at your look at every late night show there's ever been. Yeah, there were no black people writing on those shows. You can see that. You know what I mean? Amber's experience gets us to America's inescapable issue, race. As it has with everything else in our culture, race has circled late-night television like a nasty storm that just won't dissipate. A notable incident took place in the very early days of late-night's patriarchal production, NBC's Tonight Show. The first host, Steve Allen had the great black singer Lena Horne on as a guest. After her performance, Alan greeted Horne, as he did many female guests, with a quick embrace and a peck on the cheek. Alan's son Bill recounted how Alan reacted when he received repulsively racist letters about that episode. He went on the air the next night, and he read the letters. And he said, there is something wrong with you people who are writing these letters. And if anyone out there in the audience tonight knows the gentleman who wrote this particularly despicable letter, I hope you will get him some help because he could not be more wrong. And every time Lena Horne comes on this show, she will receive an embrace and a kiss from me because she is a beautiful woman and a giant talent. Late Night was welcoming to many black artists, but not always without reservation. Dick Gregory before his political activism in the civil rights era, was a breakout stand-up in the early 1960s. He raised his profile enough to think he might achieve a dream he desperately sought, a shot on Jack Parr's Tonight Show. But Gregory heard from the singer Billy Eckstein that African Americans were allowed to perform on Tonight, but not to sit on the couch. So, as Gregory told it, when Parr's producer called him to invite him to come on and do stand-up, Gregory hung up on him. Parr himself called back and told Gregory, of course he would be allowed to sit on the couch. This was 1961. Gregory said sitting on the couch was symbolic because you were being accepted as part of the family. At the time... Blacks were still being assaulted for trying to sit at lunch counters. Johnny Carson, the giant of late night, made a conscious choice to steer clear of political controversy during the turbulent 1960s. But Carson made perhaps his most influential statement on race when he wasn't even there. In February 1968, when Carson took a week off for vacation, he turned his show over to the singer and activist Harry Belafonte. The bookings that week included plenty of show business names, but also guests that viewers were more accustomed to seeing in the headlines, like Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. What do you have in store for us this summer? That's a good question. Well, I don't know about this summer, huh? I guess I should begin with what we have in store for the spring. The Reverend King was shot and killed two months later, in April, the spring. Carson admired talent, 
That's why he advanced the careers of comics of every color and ethnicity, including names like Richard Pryor and Freddie Prinze. But nobody would argue that Johnny Carson was a leading light in the drive for racial equality in America. Doors were not thrown open to break out performers representing the diverse culture of America. Hip-hop artists did not mesh with the big band ambiance inside the Tonight Show studio. Audiences of color did not see much that was relevant to them in late night. Not until Arsenio. We'll talk about the enormous impact Arsenio Hall had on young viewers of color, some of whom went on to become late-night stars themselves, when Behind the Desk returns after another short message. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Jean Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. When you're writing and everything, do you think about, like, there's some kids that probably look up to me. I need to change some of these lyrics to something else. You ever do that? No, because then I wouldn't be real. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it to him real. I'm not going to say, don't do drugs, don't do this, don't do that. I'm going to say, Snoop Dogg did this, Snoop Dogg did that. It wasn't nothing nice. So, I mean, you should peek my knowledge and get up out of it before you, you know what I'm saying, not blessed with that chance to do it. Yeah. yeah. Arsenio Hall spoke about his career on Vlad TV. Hip-hop saved my life, man. Hip-hop gave me a career. Because, sure, there's Bill Clinton. And sure, there are all the actors and actresses that came along. But it's being able to put Will Smith on that performs parents just don't understand. Uh, All those things that brought a culture. And when I say culture, I don't mean black. I mean the hip-hop culture. I was bringing this into the living rooms of people who could safely watch it and get to understand it. And that's really why it worked. Arsenio did not have an especially long career in late-night TV. His syndicated show ran for about five years. But his impact and his influence cannot be overstated. It was huge. In that comment, Arsenio referenced the moment that a presidential candidate, Bill Clinton, came on his show and played saxophone. Some have called that the most memorable guest appearance in late-night history. But what was at least as memorable was the reason Clinton did it. There was a young, engaged, passionate audience watching that late-night show, an audience you simply could never reach anywhere else, not on Johnny Carson's show, nor David Letterman's for that matter. Arsenio opened his stage to a new generation of talent and style and language and fashion and a new generation of viewers black and white, flocked to it. For the longest time when I watched late night television, we were either spoken to or spoken for. Hassan Minaj, whose parents are from India, was born and grew up in an affluent area in California, not seeing anything on TV that spoke directly to him. Arsenio Hall in Late Night changed that. I remember there was a few seminal moments in my life. Number one, I think, was Arsenio. Seeing 
a performer of color authentically be themselves was, was groundbreaking and game-changing. Nothing before or since shook up Late Night the way Arsenio Hall did. And in so doing, he became the first genuine threat to Carson's dominance. Black audiences were ripe to stand and whoop it up for their own new champion. But Arsenio's appeal was broad and young. The comic W. Kamau Bell was greatly influenced by Arsenio Hall. It showed that black culture was important and that it was diverse and also that it could make money. But Hall's show eventually faltered, mainly because his lineup of syndicated stations was undercut when David Letterman went to CBS. Arsenio had planted a flag in late night. Still, there was a yawning host gap between Arsenio and Trevor Noah, 20-plus years. That demonstrated how entrenched the white male roots have been in the late-night turf. But even deep roots erode over time. Sometimes they just lose their grip when a torrent comes flooding down. In late-night, that torrent was a torrent of change, beginning with technology that is eliminating the gatekeepers of the past who were responsible for opening the doors of late night to aspiring performers or locking them out. Thesis and Mero didn't get a show because they worked their way into a five-minute set on with Johnny Carson or Jay Leno. They got one because they were working the corners of the Internet, doing something that only vaguely resembled a late-night show Basically a deconstructed late night show. We had no guests. Uh, we had no code. Like, we would just start filming. And there was, like, no... It was just off the top of our domes. You know, we've become... And that was necessary at the time because we had to stand out in late night, you know, in a world where the other guests, the other hosts don't look like us, they don't talk like us. After working in the world of web series, they moved up to a show on the Viceland TV channel. In Oakland, California, a white lady called the cops because black people were having a barbecue. Yeah, they're playing get bands and they're using something called dry rub. I don't know what that is, but it sounds like drugs. They're smoking slow and low. I know what that means. That's slang for marijuana usage. It was there that they impressed executives at Showtime. And now they're on big time TV twice a week. And they're getting great reaction, as is obvious from their guest lineup which has included Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and even a former president of the United States. Miro and I were just chopping it up, and then Miro, uh, Obama comes in and just joins in. We just get more human interviews from people because, you know, we're two regular dudes from the Bronx, you know what I mean? But the change happening now also means once you get the bigger platform, you try to use it to open some doors for the talent emerging on platforms all across the video universe. Z-Way, who goes by her first name, is a Massachusetts-born child of Nigerian-born parents. She bucked her parents' dreams of a doctor or lawyer and decided she was a comedian. She first got an internship on the Colbert Report and even got an early joke accepted. At Comedy Central, Z-Way got some life-changing advice from a Daily Show correspondent, Asif Manvi. 
he told us, he said, you know, um, the internet is a way to kind of get around gatekeepers. And your job as a young creative is to just create and create and create. And eventually something will stick or you'll quit. There is no quit in Z-Way. Among other early efforts to create, Z-Way did a podcast. She did animated work as the voice of Kamala Harris. And she eventually landed at YouTube, where her show, Baited, generated a lot of noise and laughs for her audacious interviews that exposed racial attitudes her guests didn't even know they had. We're going to take a trip down memory lane and see when my guests learned to be racist. Where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island. Oh, wow. Yeah. How many black people live in Long Island? Can you list them all? No. Give Whether it a it's... try, Tarek, Malik. <laughs> I'm sure there's a Malik. Um... Wow, that's racist. <laughs> now she's moved up to Showtime with a show after Desus and Mero. And she knows it has been the complete upheaval in the world of late night that has made it possible. If I had been born 10 years earlier, I don't know if I would have necessarily the same opportunities or if I would have been able to break through in entertainment in the same way. I'm lucky that I came at a crux point in American history where I could go online and make and produce things myself. And then thousands of people can watch my work in real time. And that is that is entirely because of the, the sort of infrastructure of the internet. It isn't as though the possibilities offered by the internet have occurred only to the women and people of color who are finally getting their chance in late night. The established late night stars are fully aware that an audience of only one million or so for their linear broadcasts may be the best they can now do on that platform. But that number in no way captures the full reach of their shows. Not when Jimmy Kimmel's mean tweets or Jimmy Fallon's mom dancing with Michelle Obama can generate tens of millions of views on YouTube. Consider the case of James Corden, whose broadcast on CBS toils in the linear TV netherworld long after midnight, but who can post an edition of his signature bit Carpool Karaoke with the phenomenal singer Adele and rack up about 240 million views and counting? I can't work out if I should wear a wig wig or have a weave. I mean, what I like is that you're coming to me for this advice. <laughs> Do you mind if we listen to some music? Let's listen to some. Not... It's such a shame it's raining, so I feel like Americans are going to get to assume that England is rubbish. No, not when this, not when this puppy comes out. Hello. Even factoring in repeat viewings, and I think I've seen that one about 12 times myself, that is an audience Johnny Carson could never have imagined in his wildest dreams. Okay, he did get 40 million once for that Tiny Tim wedding, but 240 million views? Of course, this is the question that hangs over the future of late night. For many millions of people especially ones too young to remember Carson or, or even Letterman. The concept of late night is more a brand than a definition. They may never see the contemporary shows late or even at night. That doesn't mean they don't know a late night show when they see one, whenever they see one. Look closely at what Amber Ruffin is doing and Z-Way is doing and Desus and Mero are doing. 
The DNA of late night television is in there, in every cell. It was also there every night Trevor Noah did his show from the tiny home space he was working in during the pandemic. It was there when Jimmy Kimmel was talking to his sidekick Guillermo from one corner of his house or another. Or when Desus did interviews from his sneaker closet. The pandemic shows looked vastly different from anything previously seen in late night. They looked like the future. But like every sci-fi movie ever made, when they try to show traffic in the future in an overcrowded city, the cars have weird shapes, but they're still recognizable as cars. You know who can recognize a late-night show? Maybe the late-night show of the future when he sees one? David Letterman can, as he did in a visit with Desus and Mero. When I first saw the promos that you were running years ago on the Viceland outlet thing, I thought, these guys, this is it. This is the future. This is the way it ought to be. And it makes me so happy that it has come to pass that way for both of you. So this is, bro, wow, bro. wow, 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 wow. Having David Letterman look you in the eye and say, you guys are the future of late night is like Michael Jordan looking you in the eye and being like, you're the future of basketball. You know what I mean? It's that big of a moment. Because, like, he's synonymous with late night. Like, you know, besides him, like, who do you, like, who do you, who are the guys? You know, the, the Mount Rushmore of late night. Letterman is up there and like the rest is debatable. So the getting there, the avenues to pursue to get recognized for your comedy and your personality are clearly changing and will continue to in who knows how many ways in the future. But will the essence of what is a late night show, the topicality of the humor, the conversation, the out of the mainstream attitude, the commentary on the cultural and political events of the day, Will all that necessarily disappear? Not even the newest of the new voices thinks so. Here's Z-Way. I think that there is a way for streaming to exist in its evergreenness and the topicality of the network shows and the cable shows to still exist respectively. And it's just about finding ways to merge between, it's finding ways to marry the two. Of course, streaming is going to dominate the future and linear television may be completely limited to news and sports, but maybe a little late night? Late night, or after a day's work and an evening of streaming whatever series seems compelling on Netflix or Amazon or whatever, there is still a place for a traditional show that sums up the day's events and brings on guests, glamorous or just plain interesting. It has always been an unusual an unusually intimate experience. Hanging out late at night, maybe alone, with some smart, funny star who somehow touches your sensibility and provides some laughs, diversions, insights, or just moments of joy before the lights go out. Is it possible to imagine a future where such a thing is still part of American life? Amber Ruffin can. Late night is a weird freaking thing. It's at the end of your day. You're trying to chill out right before you go to bed. Sometimes you're literally in the bed. And you watch these people who you don't know talk about 
how they feel about the news. It's strange. It is not a great way to relax, you know? And, like, if it's good, you end up, like, doubled over laughing. It's an odd ritual, and I love it. So do I. I'm Bill Carter. Thank you so much for joining me for Behind the Desk, the story of late night. Please be sure to check out more podcasts from CNN at cnn.com slash audio. Be sure to subscribe to Behind the Desk, the story of late night on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us. We'd love to know what you think. Behind the Desk, the story of late night is a production of CNN Audio and CNN Original Series. It's executive produced by me, Bill Carter, as well as Johnny Kalangas, David Brady, and Kate Harrison Harmon. Megan Marcus is the executive producer of CNN Audio. For CNN Original Series, special thanks to Molly Harrington and Kira Bowden-Golagorski. The producers are Mark Malkoff and Johnny Kalangas. And our editor is Nick Pruer. Matt McClellan is our line producer. Special thanks to Amy Antellis, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, John Ehler, and of course, to all the great people who shared their experiences and insights with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.